the right leader can make all the difference in the world. Uh, The right leader can make all the difference in the world, especially in times of crisis. In this last week, there was an anniversary. I'm sure many of you remember it, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor and the attack there. That day, of course, has lived on in infamy. It's a day that led this nation into armed global conflict on a scale never before seen on the face of the earth. And what we learned even through and leading up to that world war was that nations need good leaders. Consider 1940, May 1940, a man named Winston Churchill becomes the first prime minister of Great Britain. Uh, he, be- he became prime minister of Great Britain, not the first one. Things at that time looked grim in Europe. You remember what was happening at that time. The crisis was looming. Morale was sinking. Nazis were marching. And the British would soon be cornered at a place called Dunkirk and had to evacuate. And as soon as he ascends to the premiership, this is what Churchill says. Quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And then he goes on to make speech after speech. He goes to visit the troops on the front lines. And what does he say? He says this, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. And we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall fight and we shall never surrender. Churchill's leadership, both his words and his actions, played a decisive, a vital role in that allied victory. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because it is difficult to under, excuse me, to overestimate the importance of good leadership. Good leaders bless those that they lead and bad leaders do the opposite. Bad leaders are a curse. Now, we don't care much for kings in this country. Can I get an amen? Right. The whole country was founded on rebelling against a king. We don't think much about kings. But when we read our Old Testament scriptures, we find that Israel was promised even back as far as Genesis 17. Abraham was told that kings would come from his family. Genesis 17, 6. And what we saw later on in Israel's story is that God covenanted with Israel and he raised up a king named David. And then he's promised that his sons after him would be king in Israel. And what we learn when we study our Old Testament scriptures is this. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Let me say that again. If you don't don't take anything out of this, here's what you want to take out. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Now, all of that was introduction to our passage. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 1. 
you're not used to looking at a Bible, you can find this on the very first page of the New Testament uh, in your pew Bible. Just open up. If you don't have a Bible that you can read, please take the pew Bible as a gift from our church to you. We want you to have a Bible that you can read and understand. This should be on page 807 in the pew Bible if you're not used to reading the scriptures. Now, we've been studying Matthew's gospel for Advent, these first two chapters. We looked at the beginning of this genealogy. Children, what's a genealogy? It's the family tree. It's this long list of names that Matthew begins his gospel with right there in verses 1 to 17. Last week, we saw in verses 1 to 6 that Matthew introduces the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he says to us that he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. Last week in the opening six verses, Matthew highlights that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's a a Jew. He's from the family of Abraham. But then beginning in verse 6 all the way to the end of verse 17, Matthew's going to focus our attention this morning on the fact that Jesus is the son of David. He's the long-awaited king promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And so this morning, as we read this long list of names that you probably won't know a lot of these people, what are you supposed to take away from a genealogy? This. This morning, I hope you will learn what kind of king God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And as we discover what kind of king he is, I have one application for you, that you will love him. So my prayer is that you leave this place this morning loving King Jesus more than when you came in. That's the the reason this is in the Bible. Now, let's start reading. I'm going to read verse 1, and I'm going to jump down to verse 6 and read down through verse 17. This is what Scripture says. The book of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah of Joram. I'm sorry, and and Abijah, excuse me. Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the generations, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 
Now, brothers and sisters, if you weren't here last week, we talk about the whole structure of this genealogy. And if you're wondering about all the 14s, go back, listen to the sermon last week. This morning, I'm simply going to draw your attention to two main things. It's a really easy outline. Here we go. Number one, there's two points. Number one, verses 6 to 15, you're going to find imperfect kings. <laughs> imperfect kings. And in the verses 16 and 17, number two, you're introduced to the perfect king. The perfect king. That's the outline. Imperfect kings and then the perfect king. And I'm hoping as we look at this together that this is a study in contrast. That the imperfection of all of these kings that lead up to Jesus will help you appreciate, magnify, love, and trust the perfect king that God has given to each one of us. So number one, imperfect kings, verses 6 to 15. What kind of king has God given to us? He hasn't given us an imperfect king, but there's a whole bunch of imperfect kings listed in verses 6 to 15. This long list begins there in verse six. You notice David is called the king. And what you find in this family tree, we don't have time this morning to go through every single one in this outline or in this passage and give you a brief bio. Even if I wanted to do that, there's actually a ton of the people listed in this genealogy that we know absolutely nothing about. So don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Look down in your Bible. Do you see basically all the way down, all the way down beginning really after Jeconiah in verse 12, all the way down with the exception of Zerubbabel, all the way to Joseph, the husband of Mary, everybody between those two, those two folks, we don't know anything about them. So I'm going to spend most of our time looking at the list after David all the way down to Josiah, okay? So let's think about this. Let me just give you a broad picture of what's going on. All of these kings that are listed after David really fall into three groups. You've got a really tiny handful of righteous kings, someone like Josiah. Then you have some kings that are good, but they also have really grievous sins, and some of whom start off well and and end poorly. But the majority of the kings listed after David fall into a third category of being utterly wicked. Utterly wicked. And what Matthew is trying to get at is whether you talk about the first group, the second group, or the third group, in some form or fashion, they're all imperfect. They're all imperfect. None of them was the perfect king that we read about in Psalm 72. Israel was waiting for a Messiah and none of these guys were it. Now, let me just think about it in two kind of ideas. We're Americans, most of us, and we don't really care much about kings. I mentioned that earlier. So what was the significance of the king in Israel? If you don't understand that, this is just a list of names. It doesn't mean anything. So let's just think about this for a minute. This is the most heavy lifting in this sermon. So if you want to check out, don't check out now. Just wait, let's get through this. And then hopefully this will make sense later. If you understand this regal aspect, the significance of these, this list of kings, it will help you appreciate Jesus. So I said earlier, back in Genesis 
Uh, 17, God promised Abraham that kings were going to come along from the family of Abraham. Genesis 17, 6. Later on in the story, we get to Genesis 49. Jacob, renamed Israel, he's dying. He has 12 sons and he begins to prophesy in Genesis 49. And in verse 10 of Genesis 49, this he says about one of his sons, Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And from the line of Judah, there's going to be someone who is a lion king. We've probably heard of a movie called Lion King. This is a different Lion King. A lion from the tribe of Judah. And we're told in Genesis 49, the obedience of the peoples will belong to him. So there's a prophecy in Genesis 49 that from one of the children of Jacob, the line of Judah, there's going to be a king who will come, who will reign over all the peoples, over all the nations. So you keep fast forwarding. The people go into the promised land. Joshua leads them in. Joshua dies and everything goes great. Is that how it goes? No, they're awful. They start sinning like crazy. And that's the book of Judges. And you remember what we're told repeatedly in the book of Judges. What are we told? In those days, there was no what? King in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their what? Own eyes. No king. So they say, let's just rebel. Let's do whatever we want. So you keep going on in the story of Israel. And then they say, you know what? We've lived in the nation, in the land long enough. We want to be like all the other nations. So we want a king, but we want to pick him. And they, and God says, fine, you want to pick your king, go for it. And they pick a king that looks like a king, but he's, his name's Saul. Remember Saul? We knew that King Saul was not going to work out because you remember what tribe he's from. He's not from the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. So right off the bat, you're thinking this isn't going to go well. Saul, of course, read first Samuel. It doesn't end well for Saul or for his house. Then God says, I'm going to choose a king. And who does he choose? He chooses the youngest son of a man named Jesse, who's from the line of Judah. And that young shepherd boy was named who? David. And so God promises, this is my king. I'm going to, Samuel, anoint him. He's the king. You can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. After David has been anointed and installed as king, David wants to build God a house. And God says, no, 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 David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Your son will build me a temple. You're a man of war. You're not going to do it. But he says this to, to David. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 12. Listen to what he says about David. He makes a covenant with David. This is the Davidic covenant. He says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And then down in verse 16, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
So what happens with, with this promise to David, he's promised that there's going to be a king, a line of kings that will come from his family, from the, the tribe of Judah. Now, you're thinking, what does this matter? How, how, does, it, what, how, does, this, how does this impact this genealogy? Well, here, here's why. Up until this point in the history of Israel, God had made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain? God covenanted with Israel, and that's called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. And what happened was God said, Israel, if you obey my word and trust in me, you will be blessed when you go into the land. But if you disbelieve, if you don't believe my word and you sin and you begin worshiping idols, you will receive cursing and not blessing. God gave those warnings to Israel, to the whole country, through a mediator named Moses. But now in the history of redemption, God makes a covenant with David and with his sons, with the king. And that king in Israel becomes not just a mediator. He becomes what we call a covenant federal head. Now, why does that matter? What happens at this point from David onward is that God deals with his people through one man, the king. And if the king obeys God and trusts God and walks with God, guess what happens? The whole nation is blessed. But when the king is wicked, when the king rebels, when the king refuses to trust God's word, guess what happens? The whole nation is cursed. So God deals with his people through the king. As I said earlier, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Now, children, you may not know what federal headship means. Let me explain it to you simply. Picture it this way. You know the story of David and Goliath, right? Remember, the Philistines were fighting the Israelites. And what happened was, They were fighting. They said, we're going to send out a representative. We'll send out our guy. You send out your guy. They'll fight. And whoever wins, wins the whole thing. They send out Goliath. Israel sends out David. David wins. Therefore, who wins the battle? Israel. That person represented the whole nation. And that's exactly what's happening in the Davidic covenant. That's that's the significance of what's going on here. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Last passage, and then we'll jump back into the genealogy. But you have to see this. This is what God says to Solomon. That's the the son of David. Right Right after David is Solomon. This is exactly what God says to Solomon when the temple is is, is kind of opened there in 1 Kings chapter 9. Listen to what he says. It's exactly what I've been saying for 15 minutes. Listen, God says, as for you, Solomon, if you walk before me, As David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal royal throne over Israel forever, just as I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, If you turn aside you or your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel 
from the land that I have given them and from the house that I have consecrated for my name. And I will cast them out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house, the temple, will become a heap of ruins. Do you see what I'm saying? As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Now, go all the way back to the genealogy. Why why am I telling you all this? It's because as we read this genealogy, as we see the number of just wretched kings that are listed in this genealogy, it makes sense why the passage ends with a reference five times to the deportation to Babylon. Do you see that? The the fact that these kings disobeyed and rebelled, God fulfilled the warnings that he had said. If you do this, if you walk in obedience and you trust me, you'll be blessed. But if you don't, you're going to go into exile. You're going to be deported. And this temple is going to be wiped out. And so, brothers and sisters, what we see even in this genealogy is that God is faithful to do what he says. He's a God who makes promises and keeps them. And so let me just highlight, I want you to feel not just the significance of these kings, I want you to feel a little bit of the sins of these kings. I want you to consider how shocking it is that in the family tree of Messiah, you have people that are this wicked. So I'm not going to give you every person, I just want to highlight a few. Look down in in, in the genealogy. Um, Let's start off, let's just start off right there with uh, Rehoboam. Rehoboam. He took after his dad, Solomon. Uh, He had 18 wives and 60 concubines. Uh, Let's look at Abijah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, Look at Joram. Uh, Joram. Joram murdered his own brothers. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 21. Even someone like Uzziah, you see verse uh, 8, Uzziah. He was a good king until the very end of his life. And he became prideful and he was so prideful and he sinned grievously and God struck him with leprosy. And even though he had this long resume of all these things he did as king, do you know what was on his proverbial tombstone? Uzziah, the leper. So you see a good king, he doesn't finish well and he's judged for it. The worst, though, is in verses nine and ten. Ahaz, verse nine. You haven't read about him. He burned his own children. He offered his own children to idols. Verse 10, Manasseh is the worst. I think he's probably the worst of the worst. Listen to what 2 Kings 21 says about Manasseh. Manasseh led the people astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Just think about that for a minute. The wicked nations that were in the promised land that Joshua was supposed to go in and wipe out. Manasseh was so wicked. Israel got worse than the nations who were there before they got there. Now, you go all the way down. And even after this revival under King Josiah in verse 11, he tells us how did all this end up? It ended with. Exile. It ended with deportation. It it ended with Israel having to leave the promised land. Their temple is burned. 
The priesthood is destroyed. Even when the people go into exile, they don't they lose their language. That's why the people began speaking Aramaic. They, they, they learned the language of Babylon. And so they're losing their language. They're losing their temple. They're losing their priest. They're losing their king. They're losing their throne. They're losing their land. All because they failed to have kings that were perfect, that were righteous, that were holy in God's sight. And so what Matthew is drawing our attention to is the curse of bad leaders. He's drawing our attention to the fact that sin always has grievous consequences. We may not always see those consequences, but someone will. Matthew wants you to consider these list of names and believe what God says, that the wages of sin is death. He wants you to understand that he's faithful to not only keep his promises, but he's also a God who's faithful to keep all of his warnings. And so if anything we learn from these opening names is that God, he is a God who is faithful and he is a God who delivers on what he promises in his word. Now that's, that's kind of the bad news, right? Let's get to the good news. Is there any, is there any good news in this genealogy? Yes, there is. Look at verses 16 and 17. After listing out all of these imperfect kings, we finally get to the perfect king in verses 16 and 17. Look what it says. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, I don't know how many of you have read this genealogy a ton So I I forgive you if you haven't paid attention to this, but just look again. Look again at the verb in verse 16. Do you see the little phrase was born? Do you see that? Was born in my Bible. I want you to notice the attention to detail by Matthew. He has used the same verb in every verse up until this point. He has basically said up until this point, he's used the same verb. He's used an active verb. He's basically said Abraham fathered or Abraham begat or Abraham had this kid, this son. He's used the same verb all the way down. And then look what he does. He changes it in verse 16. He goes to a passive verb. Do you see this? Jesus wasn't wasn't fathered by Joseph. That's not what he says. He says Joseph, the husband of Mary. And then notice this passive verb was born. Why is he doing that? He wants you to know that God, by the Holy Spirit, is the one who conceives of the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He's about to tell us about the virgin birth here in a few verses. It's that attention to detail that's amazing. Jesus, unlike all these other kings, is a perfect king. And his perfection is is seen in the Gospel of Matthew in two ways. So... If you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to see Jesus's kingship, his perfection as king. It's going to show up in two ways. First, Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of righteousness. As the perfect king, he is the king of righteousness. Unlike all the other kings that we just read about, Jesus is righteous. Jesus is sinless from the moment 
He is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. All the way to the cross, 33 years later, Jesus obeyed from that moment all the way to the cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, even at the end of his life, at the end of his life, it was said of Christ in front of Pilate, when they examine Jesus, just like they would examine the Passover lamb to make sure there's no defects in it. Pilate himself says, I find no guilt in this man. Why are you asking, having him executed? Because Jesus is righteous. Even though he's rejected as king, he lived a perfectly righteous and sinless life, unlike all the other kings who preceded him. If you study the book of Acts, brothers and sisters, the apostles refer to Jesus over and over again with one name. They refer to Jesus as the righteous one. He's the righteous one. And why is this good news? Why is this good news to to celebrate around Christmas? It's this. Because as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Jesus is the righteous. He is the righteous one. And the righteousness of Christ is good news for sinners like us. None of us are righteous in ourselves. All of us, like these kings, we may not have done some of the things that these kings have done, but we're all imperfect. We're all unrighteous as these kings were. But the gospel, this whole gospel that Matthew's wanting to teach us in his book, teaches us that Christ came to supply a righteousness for those who are unrighteous. And the way he fulfills that is by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We all sin, but the good news of the gospel is if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so our righteous king, he died for our unrighteousness. He rose again to count us righteous in his sight. He's bringing a kingdom of righteousness and he invites unrighteous sinners like you and like me to receive him. And when we receive him, when we turn from our sins and receive him in the empty hands of faith, he counts us as righteous. God receives us as righteous by imputing or crediting to us the righteousness of Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And so what do we have to look forward to? This king, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we're told Jesus, he will be the one who saves his people from their sins. He's bringing about a world where righteousness dwells. We're told in 2 Peter, according to his promise, We're awaiting a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so, brothers and sisters, why did I spend all that time talking about covenant theology? Well, brothers and sisters, isn't this amazing? How does Jesus end in the very very end of the gospel of Matthew? What does Jesus do on the night he was betrayed right before he goes to the cross? What does he do with his disciples? He celebrates the Last Supper. He celebrates the Passover. And you remember what he did? He took the cup and he said, 
This cup is the what? New covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the what? For the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus, in being the righteous king, he came to establish a new covenant with God's people. And all who trust in him are grafted into all of his promises. The forgiveness of sins, eternal life, righteousness, grace. Jesus is the head of the new covenant. And for all who trust in him, as he goes, we go. So brothers and sisters, let me conclude by thinking about this together as we close. He's not just a a king of righteousness. He's also a king of grace. We read about Jesus, the king, at the very beginning of this gospel. And right before he dies on the cross, what is he wearing on his head? He's wearing a crown, a crown of thorns. The diadem of the crown on his head is a picture of his kingship. What did he wear right before he went to the cross? A purple robe. He had a a fragile reed that was used to beat him. And he's on a cross which became a throne of grace. When we read this genealogy, there's a lot here. And we wonder sometimes, it seems like a strange way to begin a book, doesn't it? I mean, if you were writing a gospel, that's kind of a heretical thing, but if you were writing, would you have started with a long list of names? Well, the reason this is here is because Matthew wants us to know that this is our king. This is the king, the king of grace, the king of righteousness that God has sent into the world. And while we in this culture may not appreciate it, many others around the world have. Let me close with this story. This was from several years ago. A friend at Wycliffe Bible posted this, and I thought it was helpful. So in 1956, Des and Jenny Audrich, a pair of missionaries from New Zealand, go to Papua New Guinea. And they go to a tribe there called the Bindamarians. There were only 106 Bindamarians alive, a very small tribe, but no Christian missionaries had ever gone to this tribe. And so they wanted to take the gospel to this tribe in in Papua New Guinea. So they get there and they spend a lot of time learning the language and they begin translating the gospel according to Matthew. Well, they began to, they looked at where they were going to start and they actually decided to skip verses 1 to 17. And they started in verse 18 because they wanted to kind of begin with the virgin birth of Christ. And so they translated beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're told they completed their translation and they proceeded to gather all 106 of the villagers there. And they read the gospel of Matthew without the genealogy. And this tribe heard the Bible, the gospel in their language for the very first time. And guess what the response was? We're told that the response was complete apathy and disinterest. 
They were met with stunned silence. They just listened to it and they just walked away. This was majorly discouraging. Imagine translating the whole gospel of Matthew and you get this kind of response. And so they reported back to their missionary agency and they told them, they told their missionary agency, we want to leave. We want to go to another tribe because this is obviously not working. And the missionary agency said, you need to stay. You need to finish the translation and then you can leave. And so they did. They went back. They translated Matthew 1 to 17 and they gathered the tribe again together and they read the genealogy to all 106 of the villagers. But instead of apathy, there was spontaneous rejoicing. And there were mass conversions in the tribe. One elder who became from the tribe who became a Christian, he wrote later on why this happened. This was what he said. This is what we wanted to know. We had thought that these were just white man stories. We didn't know these men were actually real. But no imposter can fake a family tree. Only a truth teller knows his ancestors. And the difference between Jesus being a myth and Jesus being who he said comes down to knowing where he's from. I share that with you to remind you that Matthew has served us in an amazing way. He's told us not only who Jesus is, he's told us where he's from. And next week, Lord willing, he's going to tell us that he's not just a human. He's not just a king from the line of Judah. He's also God in the flesh. But until then, let's respond by loving him as being the king of righteousness and the king of grace. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you and praise you for being a kind of God who sends us your son, the son of your beloved that we can trust in and love and adore. And Father, we pray that you would help us even from a passage of scripture that we often might skip or overlook, that you would help us to see under the surface, behind the passage, all of the promises, all the amazing, glorious faithfulness that's on display, even in bringing forth the Messiah into the world. And so we pray that we would marvel at your kindness towards sinners in giving us a king who not only is righteous, but a king who dies grace in grace for sinners like us. We thank you that he is alive and that the Lord Jesus rules and reigns. Help us to glorify him today. In Jesus' name, amen.